Our first movie tells the story of a friendship behind prison walls that spans more than 20 years. Welcome to episode four of Middle Brow Madness, an exercise in podcast hubris. My name is Derek Ghani. I'm Michelle Arf. And uh, we come to you uh, with another couple of matchups in this large, large, large bracket that we've set up for ourselves. Uh, if this is your first time, uh, what me and Michelle have done is we've taken the Internet Movie Database's top 250 films of all time, uh, added six ringers to it to make a large... 256 movie bracket, and by God, we're going to get to the end of it and crown the best movie of all time, Asterisk. As defined by us, as defined by IMDb. Oh yeah, there's a lot of constraints in this. Last episode, we contended with the specter of a lot of bad dudes. And I think this one, we're contending with the specter of the worst dude. Yeah, definitely. He's at least in the running, if not number one. Oh man. So anyway... The two, <laughs> we'll get there eventually. We're going to be, uh, yeah, we're going to tear Peter Jackson a new one, that son of a bitch. <laughs> yes. Uh, the two, uh, the two matchups today are, uh, Unforgiven versus The Bridge on the River Kwai and Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring versus Annie Hall. Ah, uh, God. Already to our second Clint Eastwood movie, which is, I like how quickly they came up, uh, together. Yeah, and uh, they, they they kind of rhyme with each other in a weird way. But we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. Let, let, let me tell you the tale of the tape on these two first movies. Uh, uh, Unforgiven, ranked number 111 on the IMDb Top 50, uh, top 250, directed by Clint Eastwood, released in 1992, nominated for nine Academy Awards, winning four Best Picture, Best Director, Best Supporting Actor, and Best Editing, and a pretty substantial hit, made $159 million domestic, Back in 1992, and uh, uh, facing number 139, The Bridge on the River Kwai, uh, directed by David Lean, released in 1957, seven for eight at the Oscars, winning pretty much all its categories, David Lean, Best Director, Alec Guinness, Best Actor, and several others that I don't have at the ready, because turns out I'm not that good at podcasting. Okay. And uh, it made $30 million in 1957, but turns out that shakes out to about $270 million in today's dollars, which is pretty good. Yeah, not so, bad. I, I've never made a movie that successful, I'll be honest. No, I've made movies, but they sucked, and uh, no one has seen them. So, <laughs> actually, I should say I've made movie. I've made one. Um, do you think that's... That was a terrible segue. I don't even know what I was trying to do. Derek, <laughs> Yo. uh, just go for it. What's Unforgiven about? No one's seen Unforgiven before. We're the first people to talk about it. Yeah, uh, Unforgiven's uh, one of those revisionist westerns I keep hearing about. It's uh, Clint Eastwood, uh, co-writing, directing, starring, producing, if I'm not mistaken, as well. Uh, basically contending with his legacy. Uh, it's a movie about a retired assassin who comes out for one last job. That's the core, that, that's the core of it. That is the core. And- there's a lot, even in that small premise, to deal with. I think when you say revisionist or uh, what's the word you used for Western? The uh, I, I said revisionist, uh, alternative oh. Western. Yes, alternative or revisionist Western. I think it's the the canonical one, even if I don't think it's necessarily the best one. But 
the fact that it's directed and starring the Western star, besides maybe like John John Wayne, depending on your generation. And the entire film is about him really grasping with what his old films were about and what they meant and implied. And I don't think it does it entirely successfully, but I think it does it fascinatingly. Um, have you seen this movie before? Uh, I had seen... I This is one of those movies that I saw piecemeal in my teens and early 20s. And I'm... Because sh- I remembered every beat of the film. But I can't sit down and tell you, yes, I saw it in its entirety at this point in time. But now I can say that I have. But I'm... I, I'm 100% sure that I had seen it before in its entirety. Because here's the thing. My grandfather, may God rest his soul, loved Westerns, as a lot of men of his age did, and was uh, particularly fond of uh, of the Duke, John Wayne, but uh, was, you know, just as happy watching Clint do his thing, and just as happy watching, like, the weird, gritty shit, like, Unforgiven It. And I, that must have been where I saw it. I have kind of the opposite experience where I know for a fact I watched it when I was younger, like the whole thing through, but I didn't remember basically anything rewatching it. Oh, interesting. So it was kind of like, it was kind of like watching it again for the first time. Because this movie was kind of like, is kind of striking. Like it has a lot of stuff you remember. I don't think it was, I think the things that they're striking about it aren't things that are really for you when you're a kid. Oh, that, well, this whole movie is not really for you when you're a kid. Oh, no, certainly. But, but it was more just like, the images you remember are images that are interesting because of how they relate to other films and how they relate to culture at large. Yeah, this is kind of a this this is definitely one of those uh, meta text films. Yeah, it it doesn't work if you don't have Clint Eastwood in that lead role. It doesn't work if you aren't playing off of his famous roles or playing off of the characters he's built up along the way. And I think it's better for that. I think it's a much stronger film for that context. But. I will say one thing that kind of threw me off, I think it thematically makes sense, but it also it feels weird when I watched it, was parts of it feel very classic Western, like joy, like fun classic Western, and parts of it are just like incredibly dark and mean and brutal. And I, I never really felt those combined properly. I think a lot of the film, because it, start, it starts already pretty grim, and it gets progressively darker and weirder and more sadistic. And those weird moments of like, I hesitate to call them levity. Like when, when Clinton Morgan Freeman are talking about jerking off on their horses. Yes. Yes. As they, they feel, I I do agree that they feel weird, but I think they serve to underline the kind of absurdity of the idea of doc, like in quotation marks, documenting the frontier. Like they expose, they expose the lie in a different way. Yeah, I'd, it's again. I think it thematically is resonant, but the main issue I had is that I didn't feel that that darkness really roll all the way in until the last act really happens. Right when 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 Clint becomes the evil version of every like every hero he played in the sixties and seventies. I mean, it's essentially when the film gives you what you quote unquote want and asks you if that that's what you wanted. Yeah, and it's 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 an amazing it's it's an amazing scene. It's great, but it's also fucking harrowing. <laughs> yeah. It's great, but I also th- there's actually a really good um, film spotting episode all about this uh, this film where they discuss whether that ending thematically works with the rest of the film or the whether it's whether it's justifying that violence and whether it's like making it enjoyable in a way that the rest of the movie is going against or whether it's actually working with the themes of the film and is portraying that violence in a way that is um, what's the word is actually as dark as it should be. I personally seem to I come down a little bit on the former in that I feel 
I know what it's trying to do, but in trying to do that, it ends up doing the opposite. Because um, it's 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 fun. It's not like it's not like enjoy. It's not happy or enjoyable, but it's it's sadistically fun to watch Clint Eastwood become that badass and do the killing you wanted him to do the entire film. I agree partially because I do think that I mean it's the the cinematic pleasure of gunplay, right? But it's also there's there like I I I sit I, I sit and I watch that scene and I mean. I mean, I'm doing the exact thing that the movie, like, I, I'm like putting in the movie's hands. It's like, I know I should think this is awesome, but this is actually just kind of harrowing and sad. I think part of what helps your interpretation is the fact that it's so quick and the fact that there's no actual gunfight. It's he just mows down a bunch of people and there's really yeah, yeah. no contest. No, not, not, not for a second. It's, it, it's, it, it's like the one, it's like, the, I will say this, it's the one part of, it's the one part of the movie where, uh, it prints the legend, but I think, I think it's handled in such a way that it doesn't come off as just awesome, that it comes off as like broken. I don't disagree thematically. I disagree with how it's maybe shown and maybe how it's handled. Like, for example, I f- I, I'm going to reference this movie every single episode, I guess. But in Come and See, which is sure. there's that <laughs> <laughs> there's that famous, um, I think it's a Truffaut quote where he's like, well, no anti-war film is actually anti-war because war is so much fun to watch on screen. It glorifies war by showing it. And I think if he would have seen Come and See, he would have been like, oh, I'm wrong. Because like, Come and See is a movie that is about wars, about violence, that is incredibly, it's so sad and miserable and harrowing to watch that there's no possible way to get enjoyment from it. Whereas Unforgiven, I don't think is as successful in its gambit. I understand what it's trying to do, but it feels a lot like um, there's this video game called, oh shit, Hotline Miami. I don't know sure. if you're familiar with it. It's, I'm familiar with it. It's uber violent, and the point of it, quote unquote, is that violence is bad. But there's a problem that a lot of those things have in that, well, it was fun to do the violence, and it was fun to watch the violence happen. So you're telling me this thing is bad while asking me to enjoy the violence. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And in my eyes, that final scene feels a little bit too much like that. Not final scene, final like act, I guess. Yeah, that, that, that final showdown. Yeah, whereas I think the actual really powerful moment in there is before that where uh the what is the the Schofield kid yeah. who's who's their young uh their young hanger on who just killed his first he killed his first person and he's basically like I'm never going to do that again that was terrible and you can see in his eyes that he used to brag about oh I killed five people and he was lying but he was bragging about it cuz it's a cool thing in his eyes and he realizes when he actually did it and he just killed an unarmed man while he was taking a shit that there's nothing to be glorified about that there's nothing to be enjoyed about that and he doesn't ever want to be in that position again i think that moment is incredibly powerful and works very well with the film and i think that the more the film goes on the more it loses that kind of momentum yeah that whole sequence when they're at the tree and then then the uh, the woman comes on the horse and she does the speech where it's like you're william money and lists off all the terrible shit he's done and uh, Clint's character drinks for the first time in like 20 years or whatever. That's that, like all that. That's a great scene. And I think, I think we mostly agree on the, on that final shootout, but, and like the, the nuances are like picking nits. Like I think we're basically in agreement. No, yeah. I think it's, it's an effective final sequence. I just think it's not as effective as I want it to be, sure. but I still, I get what it's trying to do. And I think that generally it's effective at what it's trying to do. Okay. And I, I've been mostly down on this movie, but I give it four stars. I think it's a fucking great movie. It's, I think it's, it's a really good movie. I think it's a fucking masterpiece. 
I wouldn't go quite that far, but I think it's an incredibly good movie. I would love to watch it again. I'm probably going to watch it again. And um, it doesn't deserve every heaping praise that's been brought on it, but it deserves a quite a bit of it. I think, I mean, by sheer, sheer dint of the fact that they're present on this list, all of these movies risk being vastly overrated. I think it's pretty well rated. You know, it's like it's like somewhere in the middle of this list. I mean, I think it's like I haven't seen all of Clint Eastwood's movies because he's made like 50 of them. This might be his best one that I've seen anyway. Okay. I mean, I think of the Clint Eastwood films I've seen, I would think I would agree. I think it's just the way it's positioned as like the uber revisionist Western. Just it will inherently rub me the wrong way because one of my like five favorite films ever is The Assassination of Jesse James. So that's yeah. t- to me the uber revisionist western and we're not going to talk about it because it's on the fucking list because people <laughs> are ridiculous but that's the film that to me more more struggles with this idea and is more interested in like what fame for being violent and what fame for killing someone means and how it impacts a person um it doesn't do it with the same kind of history behind it obviously it doesn't have clint eastwood in it but mm-hmm. to me that's that's the film for me and this film pales a little bit in comparison which is not to say it's bad it's just that my personal tastes don't exactly align with the way it's trying to get its point across i mean jesse james is enough of an icon that i think it can contend with the same level of like of like myth making yeah fair enough but um i don't even like like there's a case to be made that unforgiven isn't even the best revisionist western of the 90s because uh, jim jarmus makes uh, dead man three years later which i haven't seen i'll be honest it's good it's another masterpiece. I, I've heard that much from a lot of other people. I've been told to watch it a million times. I just haven't gotten around to it. Also, just the the taste of Johnny Depp leaves such a sour like taste in my mouth that I don't want to. It's it's a. I know I'll, I'll be fine with it once I actually watch the film. But you know, it's it's one of those things. For what it's worth, he plays a prick. <laughs> okay, good to know. Um. So, uh, should we talk about Bridge on the River Kwai then? Yeah, for sure. This is your first David Lean movie, isn't it? Yes, for some reason I have a literal master's degree in film and have not seen Lawrence of Arabia. That's like my that's that's like my big glaring hole. You heard it here first, first folks. They let you get a master's degree in film and you don't have to fucking watch Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah, you don't have to watch Vertigo either. You don't have to watch Jurassic Park because I didn't watch those movies either until and I graduated. Did did you have to watch Citizen Kane? Uh, I had to watch it in uh, in college. I was seventeen. Gotcha. Uh, to be fair, that movie is really good. <laughs> that movie fucking rips. Yeah, that's we'll talk about it later on this list, but that's a great-ass movie. That is a good-ass movie. Controversial you know, so opinion that Citizen Kane is a good-ass movie. Oh, uh, man. I read somewhere, and I forget where, uh, that uh, instead of showing like like bulletproof masterpieces or canon masterpieces to first-year film students, like when they're like entering college, that you should show just like shitty movies. Like, like just like, 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 poverty row like exploitation shit that is just really poorly made so you can point and go here's how a movie is poorly put together so you can see the fucking genius of orson wells and greg tolan yes very i think that would be a an interesting way to do things i think that's I, we'll, we'll get to it when we get to citizen kane there's a whole bunch of baggage citizen kane has and there's some baggage that the bridge on the river quiet has look at that transition yeah but, um <laughs> best picture winner right best picture best director best actor um uh, uh nominated for best supporting actor um for uh, it, was it for holden no it wasn't for holden it's for i don't want to fuck up his name uh sesue hayakawa who okay, plays general gotcha. saito i think that's the correct choice i think he's better than william, william holden in this which is not yeah, to say he, william holden's bad but no nah, he's just kind of there th- this is one of those films that's built up a mythic kind of reputation in a lot of film circles and a lot of uh classic film 
conceptions of how like the 50s in film went. And as a big fan of Lawrence of Arabia, I think that's a movie that's rightly regarded as a masterpiece. I think it's fucking great. I was a little disappointed by The Bridge on the River Kwai. Not to say it was a bad film. I think there's a lot of stuff to like in here. I think Alec Guinness is great. Um, I think that there's a lot of good sequences in the film. And I think that the the idea it's trying to grapple with is an interesting one that I haven't really seen expressed in this way previously. Like the idea of like, what, is, what does honor actually mean? What, is this, what does this class system actually mean? What is it getting you? What is the purpose of these things? And... What does it mean when you're following the rules and the rules lead you somewhere that you don't want to actually be? Of what tangible value is the British stiff upper lip? Yes. Um, but also it's a film with a lot of strange diversions. It's a film with a, an overlong runtime. I'll be honest, I think it does not need to be as long as it is. There's no reason this movie can't be two fucking hours. Yeah. There is no fucking reason this movie couldn't have been cut by a fucking third talk about some of those scenes like what what do you think isn't essential to the film what is essential to the film um you know what's really weird you know what i don't think is essential to the film like how many times if if you're like writing and cutting this movie how many times do you have to show the british horsing around while building the bridge to make the audience know that they're just kind of fucking around and like you know thumbing their nose to the japanese maybe three times but like, how many, t- how many times does this fucking movie do it? <laughs> like, probably like a half dozen, if not more. Uh, this movie repeats itself so much in the early goings. It like is the a very first, repetitive. The first hour and a half, basically, the same thing just happens over and over. Alec Guinness doesn't want a thing to happen, and he's in the the uh, the cage. The uh, was they call it the oven? They call it the oven, but I prefer to call it the hot box. The hot box. And he's in there and his troops are jerking off while they're not literally jerking off. Probably probably literally. It's a, it's a war. But yeah. we, don't, we don't see that. Figuratively jerking off while they're building the bridge. And that's all that happens until much farther in the movie. And there's no reason that needs to take as long as it does. I think that what you need to get is that uh, when... Wow, uh, what character does he play again? Sorry, um, Colonel Saito. When Colonel Saito finally yes. gives in to what Alec Guinness wants, that's a significant moment. But you can communicate that without the preamble that it takes to get there. Yeah, that's basically that would be like the first act flip, but it happens like halfway through the movie. Yeah. Ah, uh, yeah. I, and you know what? If I want to be real ruthless in the editing room, I just cut. I just cut fucking the William Holden movie uh, part of the movie like way down. Yeah, you don't need to see him like fucking around in sick leave. You don't need to see him doing most of what he's doing. All you need to know is he escaped and he used the, a false name, and so he's forced into doing this um, this job to blow up the the bridge. That's all you need. You don't need yeah. everything else that's in there, which is that's a lot of stuff. Three scenes. That's it's him escaping, him uh, sort of running into the people to give him the job, and him coming back. That's three scenes. You don't also need the like endless trek through the jungle it takes to get to get William Holden from the place that he drops by parachuting and the eventual bridge, which takes up a huge part of the movie. I didn't yeah. expect that to be as much as it was. Um, to, to, of- to the point where you basically leave the, the the titular bridge for like thirty minutes in a time. Yeah, like Alec Guinness, lead actor in this film, fucking disappears for half an hour at the beginning because he's like busy like sweating down to like 30 pounds or whatever and then he disappears for a half hour until the final couple scenes yeah it's really strange it's a really strange film it's really weirdly put together but as we said the acting is really good it looks gorgeous oh certainly yeah 
and it like I mean, so far as you know, sympathetic portrayal, maybe not sympathetic, but like non-racist portrayals of uh, of Asian characters in major uh, major movies, this is not bad. Yeah, like there's a lot of things that could have been done with this character that I would have seen other films of this time period do that aren't done, which is a very low bar, I'll be honest, but the fact that it's not actively racist, that it actually is interested in Colonel Saito's like my headspace where he's at, that it it portrays him, if not sympathetically, it portrays him in an understanding way where he's never a the bad guy exactly. Even when he has Alec Guinness in the hot box for like weeks and weeks <laughs> and weeks, he never feels like the villain of the film. The villain of the film is the the war effort in general, the fact that these people have to be in this kind of conflict, yeah. but it's never it's the two sides could theoretically come together if they weren't in the middle of a war. Yeah, uh, Sesame Hayakawa gets to play a fucking character. And uh like like one of my favorite scenes in the movie is like when he blows up at Alec and it's like I hate the British. Ah, fuck you guys. Yeah, no, it's it's wonderful. And there's also a part later on where it looks like he's getting ready to uh commit ritual suicide and he doesn't and it's like he was preparing for it to happen you know what i'm talking about yeah yeah which is such an interesting character moment or like after he finally lets the british officers not have to do manual labor which is what basically the first half of the movie the argument is is yeah. that elegance is like no my officers don't do manual labor the geneva convention says so that they don't have to do that and finally and you know what i think about the fucking geneva convention fucking wipes his ass with it and it's amazing yes. because the movie doesn't really have that tone at all but yeah and uh but Edi- colonel- edit- editors know that actually doesn't happen yes uh but colonel saito uh after he allows that to happen you see him like sobbing in his room as all the british officers rejoice and all the british soldiers rejoice which is the kind of character moment that this film in other hands wouldn't have given yeah, like there's a, there's a universe, many universes close to our own, where uh, where the general Saito character would have been a unidimensional baddie. And I think this is something we're also going to see with uh, Lawrence of Arabia when we get to it, which is not a film without problems, but is a film that generally portrays um, the Arabic world very sympathetically, mm-hmm. uh, and that actually has characters that are Arabic that are real characters and like have things to do and aren't just plot devices. Here's my hot take for the film. David Lean, pretty good director. Yeah, I think I, I would agree. <laughs> he has a nice, he has a good eye for like these magnificent vistas and just uh, a facility for just blocking these incredibly elaborate like uh, scenes. It's 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 very impressive. <laughs> yeah, the fact that he can work with such a large cast. There's so many extras in this film, there's, and so many scenes have so many scenes have hundreds of people on screen that getting all those people to work in tandem and getting the image right must be so much work that i've i couldn't imagine how you would actually go about it some of that british elbow grease i guess sure um so between these two films i think it sounds clear that you're leaning towards unforgiven am i wrong uh no you're correct i think uh unforgiven by a nose is my verdict on this uh they're both movies about like you know like stiff upper lift like hard asses but i really like the uh, I, I really like the Clint contends with his legacy angle of, uh, of Unforgiven. And I like that it's like two hours long. Yeah, I would agree. I think Unforgiven has far less stuff I would cut out of it. Um, and in general, I think it's just a stronger, more consistent film. But uh, if you if you got nothing else to do one day, why don't you sit down and watch Bridge on the River Kwai? It's a, Bridge on the River Kwai is good. It's, it's a, a good pretty movie. good movie. Yeah. Um, you know what movie isn't good, though, Derek? 
I'm giving myself away right away. Yeah. But uh, it's a film called Annie Hall, and that's going sure. up against uh, The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Rings. Uh, which one do we want to talk about first? Well, let me give some stats. Uh, the 11 seed, Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. That's nuts. That is that's one of the- wild, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, are them all? Are they all that high, or is that the they're highest all, one? They're all pretty high. Consider that, like Return of the King, is I think the consensus best one of these three. And tell yourself that the that Fellowship is eleven. Yeah, God. But actually, you know what? Let me pull this up because this is going to be easy to. Yeah, you don't uh, have to get very deep into the list to see them. No, but I'm actually still on the bracket. So, uh, Lord of the Ring, Two Towers. Uh, Two Towers is at fifteen, and Return of the King is at seven. So they're all top fifteen. Wow. Yeah, right? People really fucking love the Lord of the Rings movies. They do. You know who one of those people is, Derek? Uh, um, I, I don't know. It's me. I like these movies quite a bit. I wouldn't <laughs> say they're that good. I wouldn't say they're one of the 15 greatest movies of all time, let alone all three of them. Well, it's like, you know who else really liked this movie? I got two answers for you. Um, You and Peter Jackson. Well, those are correct. But I was, I was going to say the Academy that nominated this movie for 13 fucking Oscars, winning four. And just people generally because it made eight hundred and seventy million dollars domestic. Yeah, and this was a big gamble. It was uh, giant. The fact that hey, we're gonna have a three hour, even in the theatrical cut, it's almost it's three hours long. Yeah, uh, we're gonna have a three hour long fantasy movie about that that we hope is does well enough that we can do two more of them, and we're gonna put <laughs> a massive budget into it at the same time, and just cross our fingers. Hopefully, this works out. And here's the thing with this: this is two thousand. Like here's here's the here's the trajectory of Peter Jackson's career. He does the Frighteners in 1996. It flops. Goes back to New Zealand with his fucking tail between his legs. Comes back four years later with the first volley in one of the most profitable film franchises of all time. And there's nothing in his career before that that would even imply he would do this kind of a film. No, other than the fact that some of his other movies were also filmed in New Zealand. Yes. Um. And I'm. I'll be honest, I'm a big fan of Peter Jackson's work in general. I think that his early gross-out work is super fun and super entertaining. I think that Heavenly Creatures is a great film. And I have a soft spot for The Frighteners as well. Frighteners is pretty good. It's pretty fun. And there's like just little little hints here and there that he used to be the the splatter horror guy. Like when when they're making like the mud golem or whatever, like around midpoint of the movie. Yes, yes. It it feels... It's 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 an Urukai, by the way. Just let, let, I, let's I, be clear. I am so not invested in the LOTR lore. I've never read the books. I, I haven't seen the two next movies in the trilogy. I haven't seen any of the Hobbit movies. I have next to no investment in these movies. But you know what? This movie fucking goes. It rules. Yeah, this movie's awesome. Um, <laughs> it's I, it's so rad. It's really cool. <laughs> I am someone who I have more of an investment, I think, than you. I don't have like the crazy like learning elvish and learning dwarvish languages obsession that some people have some people that i know have but i've read all the books i've seen all this original set of movies i didn't ever see the hobbit movies because they looked bad and apparently they are bad from all accounts and also i found out later uh just side shout out for a thing um lindsay ellis has a great youtube video series about the hobbit movies that talks about how they basically destroyed the rights of labor unions in new zealand which isn't great. I'm not a big fan of that. Ah uh, man, we can't have nice. Uh, we can't have nice things, can yeah. we? But I mean, I've also I've also read the original Hobbit book. I've read I've read the Silmarillion, which no one should ever do. <laughs> um, and I've seen these. I watched the extended edition of Fellowship for 
this episode because those are the ones I'm actually the most familiar with. I've seen the theatrical cuts maybe once when I, they were actually in theaters. I've seen the extended editions quite a few times, and usually I watch them one, two, three, back to back. Um, something, something, Tom Bombadil. I don't fucking know. I don't know what to add to this. <laughs> um, your, your favorite character is Tom Bombadil, is what you're saying. Um, I want to the, the, the absent-minded god of the entire universe of <laughs> LOTR in one of the strangest editions that Tolkien has ever made to anything. This, Good choice uh, taking him out of the movie is what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean that. Yeah, that could probably like I, I was familiar with the Legend of Tom Bombadil before. Um, so yeah, he, he would have stuck out like a sore thumb here, pain in the ass to write in or around. And th- I should say the film actually does add and tweak some things in i think very significant and good ways for example in the book boromir is not really a character and do you remember who that is that's vigo right no that's that's aragon ah uh, yeah i can't believe you right now listen I, boromir I, 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 is sean bean he's the one who boromir dies is sean bean everyone's really good in this movie too they are yeah they're very good actors and i remember the first time i watched this film i really hated boromir's character i really hated sean bean's character um because he's the one who attempts to steal the ring from frodo and then realizes his mistakes and dies the weakness of man yes but watching it again he's such a tragic character in the very like shakespearean sense of tragedy in that he realizes what his downfall is he tries to atone for it but he still he dies because he has to like he essentially has to in that point and it's such a strong character moment such a strong like epic fantasy emotional moment when he sacrifices himself to save the uh two of the hobbits that I, I I teared up when I watched it, which I don't usually tear up watching like epic fantasy films. Um, like I haven't seen the next two movies in the trilogy, but I don't think other high fantasy films need apply. I think this might be the end of the line for everybody else. Like, why bother making more? Yeah, I, it does so much, and it's so it's it's full, but it's not overstuffed. It's yeah, so it's, it's long, but everything feels like it's leading to something else, and everything feels like it's actually supposed to be where it is. It's such a well-oiled machine. It's massive, and it just keeps going. Yeah. I will point out that some of the editing in this film was a little strange, uh, especially, like, if you can feel the slightly lower budget of this film versus the later films. It has a, an amicably amateurish quality at moments. Yeah, I guess for, like, a, a something that costs, like, $100 million to make. Yeah, sure. Yes, but I mean, like, like there's a, a scene, I think, when Frodo's waking up uh, in the Elfish City, and there's just, like fading in dissolves of people's faces in like a pink background and it's all like distorted and weird it's a s- incredibly strange shot i actually reblogged a post not too long ago on tumblr that was about the editing on that and i'm not saying it's bad i'm saying it's kind of goofy in a way that i can really appreciate out of a fantasy film and yeah i mean if your fantasy film isn't at least a little goofy what the fuck are you even doing certainly um i, the, I want i want to say that in a, in one of the weird uh, one of the weirder associations that my brain has made on my short time in my short time on Earth is that I have paired in my mind uh, the scene where um, where uh, Hugo Weaving appears to uh, Elijah Wood in his stupor uh, when we get into Rivendell, and the intro to I think Half Life or Half Life Two. <laughs> okay, when like uh, Gordon Freeman is like coming to and there's just like a face talking at him in the Nether. That's an interesting comparison. I wouldn't have ever gone there, but I I see what you're going for. I I get it. I gotta speak my truth, Michelle. Also, one thing you said during the uh, in the chat, I think, is that Ian McKellen does some fucking work in this film. It's he's so fucking good in this. He was nominated for best supporting actor, and I can see why. This movie doesn't hinge on him, but his presence is 
his presence just casts a shadow over the whole film in a good way. He's very present. And I think that presence just kind of needs to be there. So he comes back in the second one, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, no Spoilers. But yes, he does come back. and He dies, but does he? Uh, it's complicated. You'll it's you'll complicated. get it. <laughs> you'll you'll um, watch the next movie and kind of kind of half understand it. <sighs> we gotta talk about Annie Hall now. Oh God, yeah. Okay, I, I just want to say one more thing about Ian McKellen. If yeah, the scene that kind of like really exemplifies how his range in this movie and what he does. There's a scene early on where he's trying to get Bilbo to give up the ring and to leave it to Frodo, and Bilbo's basically accuses him of trying to take it for himself. And then the whole like room darkens and. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Ian McKellen like adopts his booming voice and is like, Bilbo Baggins, I'm not trying to rob you. And then all of a sudden, like, it goes back to the the hearth of like the fire, and he says, I'm trying to help you. And it's it's such a wonderful high height, and you got to hear my Gandalf impression for the high <laughs> and the low and the low height. It's a wonderful scene. I just love it. And I love the unreality that it uses to portray that moment. I just like I just like wizard shit, Michelle. It's as simple as that. Wizards rule. I think that's pretty pretty clear. You know what uh, doesn't rule? What fu- rules slightly less? <laughs> um, Woody Allen. Oh, okay. Let's talk about Annie Hall. Let's do this. Let's fucking let's like rip the fucking band aid and talk about Annie Hall. Yeah, this is uh, the movie. Released, I think we were both dreading so much. Directed by Woody Allen. Released in 1977. Uh, four Oscars out of five nominations, including Best Picture. Correct. Best Picture. Best Director. Best. Uh, screenplay and best actress I and don't quote me on that and uh made a made, made a tidy uh 38 mil on uh i think it was like a it's, a it's not an expensive film i think the thing that cost the most money in this was a little animated sequence in the middle yes probably oh god what do we talk about when we talk about woody allen let's start with him with the man himself i wish sh- uh, we should we should put the uh, the big scare quotes around the word alleged before alleged. we say everything we're about to say but he is allegedly a child molester, a pedophile, a terrible human being in every sense of the word. And it makes my skin crawl just seeing the man, to be honest. And you see a lot of him in this movie. Unfortunately, yeah. He's he's the whole... He's the thing. You, the this kid, is a Woody Allen movie in every sense of the word. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and the reason I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by this movie, and I, I almost think we're going to go over those 10 minutes, is because for all that I hate Woody Allen as a human being and I hate this movie. I don't think it's a very good film. It, it looms so large over romantic comedy, over the shape that comedy comedies themselves would go over um, Jewish cultural identity. Honestly, Uh, this is such a big part of Jewish culture in the United States. It's Woody Allen and Woody Allen films. Uh, It also looms large over, you know, just the every film, Made every film by shot sh- in New York. Every film shot in New York. Every film about a schmuck who gets a, a girl too good for him. In short. Yeah, the, the, like the, this movie casts a long shadow. And I was frankly kind of disgusted with myself how easily I got back into its fucking rhythms. Because I'm a garbage human being. <laughs> I mean, that's... I, I think I even like put in my review that I can't, I can't say that the film didn't make me laugh. There's parts of it that there's some really good gags. I think there's some that are like, there's a part, I think the film has two kind of alternating ways of communicating itself. One is actually clever and one is congratulate yourself because you get what I'm saying. I think that one is very tiresome. Like there's a part early on that is pretty famous where 
the guy behind him, behind Woody Allen in the movie theater, is talking about Marshall McLuhan and talking about uh, Fellini. And he makes some incorrect statements about McLuhan's work. And Woody Allen literally pulls Marshall McLuhan into the scene and has him say, you were wrong, basically. And yeah, then he pulls, pulls his fucking tall, pasty Canadian ass out there yeah. and just... And he's not a good actor. He like has three lines and flubs one. Yeah, and it's not funny. It's 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 very Family Guy in that uh, <laughs> it, it, the joke is that hey, you know this thing I'm talking about, therefore, haha. Whereas like there's jokes later on that actually build off the reference. Like there's a joke I think I actually posted in our chat, which is where he says even Harvard makes mistakes. Like uh, Kissinger taught us that. Was that that's a funny joke? Is like, hey, I know who Kissinger is. I know that he went to Harvard, and I can see the setup and punchline that require that, but don't base themselves entirely on that premise. Yeah, this movie's good when when Woody's not talking about his wiener. Yeah, but he does that an awful lot, doesn't he? He does that an awful lot. It's funny when he sneezes into the cocaine, but it's less funny when he's like, you know, like coaxing Diane Keaton into sex. Yeah, <laughs> oh, fuck me. Or the fact that multiple times in this movie are scenes of him basically trying to get his girlfriend or some another, another woman to have sex with him when they've said, no, I don't want to have sex tonight. Yeah, I mean, that's... Uh, who is it that said when someone tells you who they are the first time, believe them? Oh, God, I feel... Shit, this is... This is that, like came up in my life recently, too. Is that Toni Morrison? Um, I want to say it's Toni Morrison. I'm trying to remember where I heard that recently from, too. Shit. I think it's one of those things that it's been misattributed so many times that it could be by anybody. I'm getting a lot of Maya Angelou, who is a different writer. Yes, definitely a different writer. But yeah, I'm getting like stuff like yeah, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna, I'm gonna. The internet tells me that it's Maya Angelou. So let's do. Let's say that. Okay. And if, and if I'm wrong, blame the internet. And Woody Allen tells you a lot about who he is in this movie, and it's not a great picture. Although, nah. here's the main issue, and I think that we're gonna come up against, and that I think that people who disagree with us on this film, or at least disagree with me very strongly are going to butt up against in that I understand that the point is that um, he's not a great guy, that Alvy's not a great guy. But right. I don't think Woody Allen actually believes that. I think Woody Allen actually believes that he's a really smart person. Obviously, Alvy's a self-insert. There's no like getting around that. No. He thinks he's a really smart person who's really funny and says some of the wrong things sometimes, but ultimately a likable guy. Even though when you watch the movie, he's a jerk. He's mean all the time. He never says anything nice to Diane Keaton. He's and not, there's a difference between playful ribbing and genuinely mean ribbing. And he constantly steps over that. He constantly dismisses everything she thinks. He's um, borderline emotionally abusive, borderline sexually abusive. He's just a fucking creep. Yeah, and, he definitely is a creep. And it's not like uh, there's a. I think that High Fidelity is a good comparison point because I think that the main character in High Fidelity, as played by John Cusack, is a very similar guy to begin with. And the whole point of the movie, the end of the movie, is that, hey, I shouldn't have been that guy, and I'm a better person now that I realize I was just an asshole, and I shouldn't have acted the way I did. Whereas this movie just ends with him throwing his hands up and being like, oh, love's, a, love's illogical, love's kind of crazy, and we just need it sometimes. I don't, who knows why that crazy bitch doesn't want to date me anymore? Could be anything. I agree. Okay. I also think the movie is slightly more self-aware, and I have absolutely no basis for this, other than just my own baggage. I I mean, I think it's... The issue I think that I'm seeing is that I I already have a dislike of Woody Allen, so it doesn't help. Sure. It doesn't want to give me... I am not going to give him a lot of slack. And also, I've seen so many other movies that do the same thing, like knowing that the main guy is not a great guy better. Like, even... Mm -hmm. 
I would take 500 Days of Summer over this, which is not a movie I love, but it's a movie that very clearly knows that the way that um, who, the, what's his name in that um, from Brick, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Joseph Gordon-Levitt. The way that Joseph Gordon-Levitt has been acting is bad. It realized it. The movie's about that. Uh, and or a movie like uh, shit. What's the movie I, I just with? Uh, what's the movie with Paul Dano and um, shit? Uh, uh, fuck. Not Zoe Kravitz. Not Zoe Deutsch. Who the fuck is in that? Paul Dano's partner. Fuck I, yeah, I don't know. Zoe Kazan. What the fuck is the name of that movie? Uh, Ruby Sparks. I've never heard of this film. It's a movie where basically a dude writes a Manic Pixie Dream Girl. The Manic Pixie Dream Girl becomes a real person and realizes that the dude who wrote uh, dude who wrote her is a piece of shit. Oh, that sounds fun. It's a, it's a it's high concept. But the movie I was actually thinking of was, or not a movie, but a person is, and I think this also kind of looms large whenever you're discussing Woody Allen, will be Albert Brooks. Yes. Who is another person, another Jewish comedian who writes a lot of movies about a bad guy and a jerk. But all of his movies understand that the joke is, this guy's kind of an idiot. This guy, the way he's acting isn't right and isn't cool. And... It's more self-aware, more able to look at itself, and more interested in looking at itself. Whereas, I feel like if we want to compare the two, which is kind of unfair, even though like they're both they're brought up in similar conversations, even though I think they're much more different than that gives them credit for. But I think where Albert Brooks is criticizing himself and looking inward and criticizing that, Woody Allen is looking inward and loving that part of himself. Yeah, because because uh, Albert Brooks is like he's 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 a West Coast guy. He's he's a showbiz guy as well. Um, I think I think he I think he stews in him to effect. Yeah. Whereas <sighs> Woody I mean, Allen in this film doesn't seem to have any depth. No, I mean it's like it's a Woody Allen type, right? He he's he's the most shallow smart guy. Yeah, yeah. I mean I'll I'll level I'll level with you. I thought this movie was pretty funny. Uh, I like the meta stuff. I like the meta stuff a lot more. I like like the weird diversions it takes. Oh, I agree. I think those are some of the strongest parts, and I'm I get frustrated by the film again because it does those interesting things and those new things, very progressive, like filmmaking wise. And then the gender roles are so stereotypical. The gender like and sexual politics are so regressive. Yeah, because you know, like like let's not forget that Woody Allen started off as like you know a stand up comic in the fifties. That bleeds through. Oh, absolutely. And- and not like not not like an edgy one, like a really like sort of you know you know coat and tie one. And and we're spending all this time talking about this this uh, this uh, like I think I'm going to recycle a term I used for the last episode. This boil on cinema's ass. Yes. Uh, and there's so many people below the line that kick so much fucking ass in this movie. Diane Keaton is in this movie. She's awesome. Paul Simon's in this movie for two seconds. He's great. Uh, Carol Kane's in this movie. Gordon Willis shot it. It's Shelley Duvall has a quick part that I think is really good. Shelley Duvall's great in it too. Jeff Goldblum shows up for he he's in the movie for literally five seconds yeah. and steals the show. Uh Christopher Walken is in the movie in a, one of the strangest roles he might have ever had, which is saying something. Yeah, and this the scene he's in sticks out so much and it's so awesome because it doesn't fit in the movie. Yeah, it's it, I like a lot of good I like this movie <laughs> besides the fact that Woody Allen's in it. I feel yeah. this movie's a lot like the Love Guru, and that uh I think <laughs> I think The Love Guru is a really good movie if you ignore the fact that Michael Myers is in it. Uh, yeah, the dude from Halloween, right? Yeah, same guy. Okay. Uh, like, I, man, I keep thinking of Ben Kingsley in that movie and it makes me sad. Yeah. Mm. It does have a great joke early on, though, which is um, 
he has he holds up a bunch of like self help books, and one of them is called "If You're Happy and You Know It, Think Again." <laughs> that's that's a great visual gag. Uh, Wait, but is, is the Love Guru the run where Vern Troyer owns the Toronto Maple Leafs? And, sure is. And Justin Timberlake plays like a goon or some shit. He plays Jacques Lecoq Grange. Jacques Lecoq Grange. Yeah. Like Jack the Dick Big. Yeah. Huh. That's a, that sounds like a late career Mike, Michael Myers yeah. Michael Myers joke. <laughs> You've it's, infected me with your with 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 your Michael. I highly recommend that people watch The Love Guru instead of Annie Hall. But we've spoken for over ten minutes about Annie Hall, which is fair because we're we're never going to talk about Woody Allen again. But do you think that this movie wins over Lord of the Rings? Uh, I don't want to do it, Michelle. <laughs> okay, l- l- I'll say this. You afforded me the courtesy of allowing a movie you liked less, uh, Paper Moon, going through over a movie you liked more. I sure and did. I, I am perfectly willing to give you that same courtesy here, if only for the fact that I just don't want to contend with the specter of Woody Allen again. Like, even though I think that, like, The Shine came off Annie Hall a bit, because this is the second time I've seen it in my life, and the first time I was, like, 17 or 18. Like, at the latest, I was in my early 20s. And I still think it's a good movie, but I, I, I can't sit here and be recommending this movie to anyone. I can't be caping for this movie to go deep into the tournament. And I like Lord of the Rings Fellowship of the Ring. So I, I can make this easier for you. Are you ready? Yeah. Which movie has wizards in it? <laughs> uh, Definitely Annie not Hall. fucking Annie Hall. Annie Hall does have a wicked queen for two seconds. For two seconds. Uh, nah. Uh, Are you going to use your video? No, of course not. Okay. I, 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 I I like Annie Hall, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna cape for it like this. Not over another movie I liked about as much. Fair enough, and it wouldn't move forward anyways after that because I would if if it, if I didn't use my veto on this moment, I would immediately next round use it. You again. would just use every veto you have to make sure this movie doesn't go forward. Oh, I to be, here's my bit of fairness to Annie Hall the movie is that before watching it, I had it at uh, one star. Now it's a two stars. So yeah, well, this was like. Like, regardless of the fact that uh, Woody Allen is a blight on the human species, this is not your cup of tea to begin with. Am I not? Am I wrong in assuming that? I disagree. Okay. I, I like romantic comedies quite a bit. Um, I have watched every single Katherine Heigl romantic comedy. I've, well, I own uh, every Amy Adams romantic comedy. I, I like screwball comedies from the old days. Uh, one of my highest, like, the highest l- movies on my to-watch list are, like, Down With Love and uh, Miss... Uh, is it Miss Pettigrew lives for a day? Uh, that sounds like the name of a movie that exists. Yeah, I, I don't think it's Pettigrew. I think that's wrong. But either way, like I, I like romantic comedies quite a bit. But I, I even, I literally, um, in terms of romantic movies in general, cheesy romantic movies, I went to see Twilight in theaters literally the other day. Yeah, I'm that a- was part of your whole, uh, your your whole. Uh, th- that was part of like a, a thing you were doing, right? No, I just like that movie. <laughs> oh, just for the hell of it. Okay. Yeah. No, I just saw that. Uh, well someone told me it was playing like in theaters again and i was like well i gotta go see it because it's it's a big part of my childhood although i've i people who are fans of my writing will learn about that soon enough when i write about it for dtl dthl but uh, it it is miss Pettigrew list for a day but cool yeah i've heard that movie's really great i have it on blu-ray i just haven't watched it yet that's right twilight turned 20 10 that's 2008 10. right it's 2018 derek that's 10 years ago okay so i'm thinking of the other twilight that came out in 1998 with like paul newman and shit I had no idea that happened. We have, we're so far off track. We should just say, "Hey, Lord of the Rings, you're going Lord ahead." Lord of the Rings, you're going ahead. Um, what are our matchups for next week? Uh, I could pull that up. Or two weeks, or we're gonna next episode. 
we're going to keep saying next week until we eventually just end up doing next week to make it easier for ourselves. We, we don't even record these weekly. We record these in like batches once a month. So I don't know why we're like... Anyway, so the next uh, the next two matchups we're going to be covering on the show are Three Idiots, which is one of the Indian films that we're uh, going to be watching, uh, going up against Sherlock Jr. and Modern Times versus The Maltese Falcon. It's a lot of oldie time movies. Yeah, like two... Two great silent comedies. I feel comfortable saying that before we actually make the decisions. Maybe, maybe Three Idiots and The Maltese Falcon would be better. Yeah, actually, Three Idiots is going into its uh, matchup with uh, Sherlock Jr. as the favorite. So what the fuck do we know? <laughs> okay. I love... I, I This is one of the reasons that I'm actually really excited to do this, is that that's a movie I've never fucking heard of before we did this list. And apparently people love Three Idiots so much that it's better than probably the best Harold Lloyd film. Uh, I believe Sherlock Jr. is a Buster Keaton joint. Fuck, fuck. <laughs> I, that's right. Here, here's me editing this part where I, I definitely said that instead. I, my head knew it. My mouth didn't say it right. Listen, if I fucked up, God the, damn it, the, I fucked up the characters from Lord of the Rings, so you get one too. Okay, but I feel like mine's way worse. Uh, maybe. <laughs> oh man. Apparently. Uh, I'm looking at the cover for Safety Last. Somehow I had the cover for Safety Last as the cover for Sherlock Jr. in my head. Either way, not important. <laughs> I I was wrong. I'm a, I'm I'm grown up enough to admit that I was I was wrong in this case, Derek. Nothing wrong with being wrong. Um, but you know what is wrong? Twitter. So where can people find <laughs> <laughs> Where can people find uh, you on the worst website in the world, Derek? Uh, you can find me on the internet, uh, specifically on Twitter at Derek underscore G. And where, they, uh, where can they find you, Michelle? Uh, they can find me at Space Jam Fan. And if they want to uh, follow the actual Twitter account for the episode, then they can go to, is it Middlebrow Pod, right? Yes, at Middlebrow Pod. At uh, Middlebrow Pod. Middlebrow Pod. And <laughs> or, I was going to say, or you can email us at middlebrowmadness at gmail.com. Yes, that's exactly correct. So uh, you've got multiple options if you want to give us a hard time for sending your favorite movie packing. But, and, um, um, so yeah, so I guess until next time, uh, I've been Michelle Arf. And I've been Derek Gane. Have movies be jolly. Have movies be jolly. Good night, everybody. Good night. <laughs>